0: Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Melissa.
1: I'm Shiv, and we are very excited to have Adote Akwe joining us here today. Adote Akwe, a graduate of the College of William & Mary and the State University of New York College at Purchase, is Managing Director of Government Relations for Amnesty International USA. Since 1988, he has worked with a focus on human rights and U.S. foreign policy toward Africa working at CARE USA, the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, the American Committee on Africa, and the Africa Fund. In his previous position as Deputy Director of Government Relations at CARE USA, he worked on issues ranging from climate change to microfinance in Sub-Saharan Africa. And as Regional Advocacy Advisor for CARE's Asia Regional Management Unit, he supported the development and implementation of national advocacy strategies.
0: Thank you so much for joining us here today, Adote.
2: Thank you
0: one of the most interesting kind of common threads that we've covered throughout our podcast is the concept of inflection points or the idea that uh, there was a point in your life when you thought you needed to pivot. And I was wondering if you could share one or two of those with our listeners.
2: Sure, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I think um, first I I grew up in a family of um, international relations. My father was in the foreign service for Ghana. And so I was surrounded by conversations about Politics and about um, international affairs. And I think that that clearly did shape um, an orientation or maybe at least a comfort with international relations as a a career path. But I think very, very clearly the most important point was um, in college, freshman year, um, actually, I think sophomore year, I had a teacher at the State University of New York who showed a documentary film called Hearts and Minds. And it was a documentary about the Vietnam War. And it was about the deception, the human rights abuses, the cost um, both to the Vietnamese people, but also to the people in the US military as well as the US government who covered up um, and lied about the Vietnam War and its reasons. And um, I remember very clearly coming out of that film and feeling very, very devastated. Um, and at that point, I think I really did start to sort of see a path moving forward, fighting for justice, um, fighting to try and prevent those kinds of things from happening. And um, I really never really looked back. Um, so that, that was clearly one major, major point um, in terms of what I wanted to do with my life. The other, I would say, was um, uh, I had the opportunity of my first job working at the American Committee on Africa in 1990, which was the year Apartheid fell and the year Nelson Mandela was released. And this organization was very small, very grassroots, had been doing student movements, you know, had been, you know, cyclostyling documents. That That's how old it was. And... But it had been a very, very um, steadfast supporter of the solidarity movement and, of course, of the anti-apartheid struggle. And so when Nelson Mandela came to the United States and he came to New York, um, you know, at that point, he was the most popular man, most famous person on the planet. There was a ticker tape parade in downtown New York. And, you know, we had an event and the thought was that, you know, he might come, but chances were He wasn't going to make it. And we all went to the conference site. We did the conference, and then the afternoon was waiting to hear, you know, is he not going to come? Are we going to get the news? And then the Secret Service starts to show up. Uh, We're all kind of sequestered into the building. And before you know it, we're all told uh, they're, they're on their way. And we're thinking, this is really, really happening. This most important political prisoner in the world is Going to come to our little rinky-dink conference wow. and um i was standing on the stage on one side to prevent people from rushing up the stage and um suddenly he walked on stage from the other side of the uh the other side of the building and he shake hands with everyone on stage he didn't just come and make a speech and leave he said thank you to everyone and I think that that was probably another significant inflection point, because it was one of the few times where someone who is a role model actually truly, genuinely lived up to whatever your dreams were of that person.
1: It's amazing. Wow,
0: that's a great story. Um, I want to kind of go back to the the Vietnam documentary and maybe ask you a little bit your questions on journalism and the role that that can play in sort of exposing, but also bringing to attention maybe things that people already know, but need to um, sort of have be reminded of.
2: Yes, um, the um, I mean, the documentary. Um, was uh it, it not only included you know footage of, of of the battle scenes but it included interviews of people both vietnamese as well as u.s and it, it included um you know uh newsreel footage of um of the american news media you know and their their questioning of what was going on and um for me um i think what i was maybe 18 at that time or, or 19 I knew of the Vietnam War. I was studying, you know, its its in in, in international relations classes and history classes, but was not picking up on the human component of it, you know. Um, it's one thing to study about, you know, um, something on paper and then another to actually see the, um, the the people to see unfortunately, you know, the massacre sites or the, the you know the after the events type of thing, and um, and then to have it immediately followed by, well, this is what happened. This is actually what really happened, and this is how it was described, and this was the justification that was used. So, um, I think the power of of the of journalism and of of documentary footage of. Even arguably of images, to basically force or um, people to focus on things and to make things very immediate is is incredibly important. We at Amnesty do something like that when we um, when the organization was founded in 1961. You know, it was founded on uh, to fight for the rights of individuals, and it was. It, it wasn't just that individuals were having their rights abused, but it was also that it humanized human rights. Um, up until then, you know, human rights was the work of governments. You know, governments signed treaties. Governments adhered to treaties. Governments broke treaties. And the rest of us were just um, uh, casual observers. And the, what amnesty did, I think, which is the most significant, was it made human rights about human beings, about individuals. And it made it very personal. Um, if you were upset about the treatment of, you know, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in, the Rush, in Russia or Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, you actually saw the face. You, you knew the personal story, and you were personally committed emotionally to working on that case. And I think that's what journalism is like also. It, it, it basically turns distant events into something that we all connect to.
1: In that same vein, um, you have been uh, on Twitter tweeting about the so-called Muslim ban and the uh, wall, Trump's wall he's planning to build, and social media does enable that human factor, and it has, it helps spread and the proliferation of information. And so what do you think the role is of messaging and social media in general in fighting human rights abuses?
2: I think it's an it's an important uh, um, distribution point of information. Um, I think that it is um, a platform that um, is more effective in reaching a wider audience. But I also think that there that it it has an inherent risk of becoming an end in itself. Um, When we are tweeting um, about um, the Muslim ban, I am—we are trained to include the link to an action, right? So that you know, I hopefully I'll have tweeted something that attracts someone's interest, and then they click on it and they say, "Oh, this is what is going on. This is the policy. This is what you should, if you want to resist this. This is what one of the things you can do." Um that should be always a tool, not the tool, the only tool. And um, I think this is one of the concerns that a lot of people are having now is that the that, that, that social media is leading to click activism, or I, I think there's a different term, but um, you know, in other words, oh, I've clicked on this and I've, I've made my contribution. I think we, we we need to sort of regroup and say, you can do solidarity, important solidarity work through that medium, but you also have to take it another step forward. You know, you have to. It, it may not necessarily be participating in a march or a vigil, but it should engage you with other people in a in a in a in a firsthand way. And I think that that's probably how I would view the social media. Um, I'm also a novice at it. So, you know, (laughs) Twitter is is one of my biggest achievements, but I'm sure there's a lot of other things I should be doing. But it it is an important tool, and it's Mm -hmm. clearly one that all of us are trying to utilize. Um, And, uh, you know, I think if there's one thing that we've learned in the the first three weeks of this presidency is that social media, um, in particular Twitter, is very much the realm of engagement. may not be a good thing, but we can't ignore it.
0: It sort of makes me wonder, it sounds like you change your messaging sort of based on the platform that you're using. And um, I'm wondering if you think that social media has the capacity to be reductive and how dangerous that might be in terms of explaining what's going on.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely um, am very much concerned. You know, there again, I think there are people who can reduce and simplify messaging artistically and still convey what needs to be conveyed. I don't think that's everyone, certainly not me. Um, and I do believe that there are some things that actually shouldn't be, you know, reduced to the point of simple simplicity. Um, just uh, as we also try very hard to be in the media cycle, um, there are times where it's not appropriate because you need to actually have a more thought out response. Um, there's, um, you know, there's incredible pressure, for example, right now around, you um, uh, the nominations process in, in Washington over cabinet nominees. The debate and discussion is 24-7. The, the different networks of organizations that are working on this are monitoring every possible statement, tweet, comments um, by members of Congress who, while important, may not even be thinking about what they're going to do in the final vote. Now, is that energy well used? Maybe it is. Maybe there is a suddenly um, someone may identify an opening in terms of something that indicates a position or on on a a nominee or not. But there's also an argument to be made that, you know, you hold your fire for strategic uh, moment and an opportunity, um, and you actually have a fully-fledged discussion. Um, And I think that... um, we're an interesting organization in that we are both an activist organization and a membership organization, but we're also a research organization that tries to produce for the record, for the historical record. So our reports and our and our approach has to be something that is not just potentially usable for legal purposes, you know, so maybe for a trial or an investigation, but also something that can stand up over time as a resource for people who are looking into investigating something and there you see the tension between you know simply making things uh sexy or short or you know of course not going in the other direction where people actually just fall asleep reading your documents
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i do want to draw us away just for a second you've come to cmc here to speak about violent extremism in africa especially sub-saharan and west africa and um knowing that you work and you've worked so much in organizations like amnesty international ingos um i was wondering what you think the role of ngos and ingos are in fighting violent extremism what can they do what should they be doing things like that
2: well i think um you have to go back first to the role of NGOs and I, and even INGOs. Um, uh, there's a, um, a very, very dangerous trend at the moment, and it's one of our areas of priority work, about political space and dialogue, people's ability to dissent, to offer criticism, to critique a government, or to even question a government's policies. That space is under severe assault, um, either... As a result of a government's desire to maintain and consolidate control, or um, it's justified as a counterterrorism type strategy. In other words, um, educating people about the risk of a terrorist attack is indeed an act of terrorism because you're facilitating the fear that those groups are trying to, you know, instigate in people or instill in people. Um, we are at at risk then of not. Um, accepting civil society and NGOs as legitimate actors in these countries. And if you, once you do that, you're closing not only the intellectual space or the free flow of ideas, you're also usually removing agencies and organizations that monitor how governments respect the rule of law and human rights. So, um, for example, in, in in Ethiopia at the moment, there um there are several laws that were passed, um that severely circumscribe the ability of civil society groups to do anything, and the hardest hit, of course, are the news agencies and the human rights groups, and in one swoop, in, in that legislation, not only removed independent monitors that could ask questions even about the basic corruption but it also eliminated the ability of citizens to have those groups represent them. So if you or I were arrested in Ethiopia for something that we didn't do, we no longer have access unless we have the money to legal defense, to challenge, and to to basically seek justice. So that's the first, I think, important um, uh, danger that we have to basically try to reassert the validity and legitimacy of civil society organizations across the world. And it's not just outside. It it It's under assault in different ways. Um, human rights defenders who work in these organizations are targeted in, on an individual basis. Um, one would also be, um, would have to look at what's going on in the United States. There are 10 states that are passing legislation um, circumscribing the right of peaceful protest. That is indeed the beginning of what we've seen in other countries where civil society groups are, are, are crippled. So when you get to this, this discussion of civil society groups and I, and, and even multinational ones and how they weigh in on this, um, countering violent extremism, you really then begin to see that you're losing the ability to question strategy, to question, compliance or even the validity of success. You know, um, the Nigerian government can claim that, oh, we just eradicated 15 different Boko Haram strongholds. There's no independent confirmation. So we just have to take their word for it and move on. Um, And we've often found that there was no stronghold. And in many cases, civilians who were not connected with Boko Haram were the ones who were killed and who were arrested so that kind of that 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 role of civil society to 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 be an interlocutor between government and i want to stress it's an interlocutor role it's not oppositional um and this is where i think both the ngos and the governments are failing is that they see themselves as adversaries and i think that's something that we've got to try to figure out how to go uh, to get by to get beyond Mm
0: -hmm. wow okay (coughs)
2: long answer I'm sorry no
0: that was great Um, we have a completely different question for you now we sort of end all of our podcasts with um, asking our interviewees what their personal definition of success is sort of how you would define it and maybe this is related to what we've been talking about but maybe it's not and what would you say to students in helping them define success for themselves
2: I think there are different definitions of success that have to be pursued, What's is it congruently when they, they happen at the same time? Mm-hmm. There's the individual and personal success, which is extremely important because that's what centers you and gives you the joy to try different things. And, and that's being true to what you really want to do. And it can be, it doesn't have to be um, saving the world. It doesn't have to be, you know, making millions of dollars. It, it has to be what you want. Um, and that's incredibly challenging at this point in, in in the lives of the students here because they have expectations from their families they have they have peer pressure they have expectations from their teachers all of them that they must succeed personally and individually and and, and sort of going through that and finding your inner route and and road is incredibly important the for me um, the professional or the larger social um, definition of success, I think, has actually, of course, changed over time. You know, in the earlier times, it might have been defeat, you know, apartheid or bring down, you know, this repressive government. Um, I now really see success as building awareness and, and empowerment for individuals so that they themselves have the ability to insist upon respect of their human rights so it's it's both which of course requires that they're safe and they're secure themselves but it also i think requires a change in their own insight in their own perception of who they are and their relationship with their governments and their societies and i think that that's probably where i'm at right now that you know if i were to leave Claremont McKenna and have had three or four people who really felt like, okay, I'm going to pursue my route, you know, and I know what I want to do, then for me, that's success.
1: Definitely. Um, Unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Thank you again, Aditya, for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry. Thank you.